Welcome to the IEEE Quantum Podcast Series, an IEEE Future Directions Digital Studio production. This podcast series informs on the landscape of the quantum ecosystem and highlights projects and activities on quantum technologies. In this episode, Professor Prinaha Narang, UCLA's Howard Rice Development Chair, provides insights on quantum developments while also providing advice to students and young professionals who might be interested in the quantum technology space. Professor Narang, thank you for taking time to join us today. Can you share a little bit about your background and affiliations? So I'm on the faculty at UCLA. I recently actually joined the UCLA faculty after having been at Harvard for a few years. So I joined here as the Howard Reese Chair in the College of Letters and Sciences. I'm a physical scientist and a lot of my work is actually cross-disciplinary. So, you know, we think about how you could merge ideas from physics and chemistry and, and applied math, essentially all relevant to this uh, field of quantum science and engineering. Um, prior to both uh, UCLA and, and uh, Harvard, I, I got my degrees at Caltech, uh, my PhD there in uh, applied physics, working on, on topics in photonics, nanophotonics, and, and quantum plasmatics. Uh, after that, spent uh, a little bit of time at, uh, at MIT. So at a high level, where do you see quantum today and how do you envision the advancement, say, five, ten years in the future? Sure. All right. So this is uh, one of my favorite questions. You know, can you look into the crystal ball and tell us what the, the future holds? The first thing I want to point out, you know, when we think about the future is that in terms of quantum technologies, it's quantum computing, it's quantum networking, and quantum sensing. This is essentially the three components that, that make up uh, this field. And previously, you would have just you know, separated out one or, or two of them and said they're intersections. But what we are starting to see is that all three of them actually are uh, deeply connected, particularly when we think about the enabling power of quantum networks in getting to more scalable as well as uh, more heterogeneous quantum computing architectures. So what I mean by that is, you know, when we think about classical computing, we, you know, try and uh, make a, a processor bigger and bigger. Well, that's, that has some limitations, but if you could connect them together, if you could actually not just connect them together in the context of a single device, but also in, in the form of what you, you know, see in a data set or what you see in supercomputing architectures, that's something that we, you know, use a lot in, in our group, you can get much more compute power. And in the case of quantum computing, this is so important because all the problems that people have been promising, talking about you know, unlocking, unleashing the power of quantum computing, those are in, in the, the very large number of, of qubit range or you know, pick your favorite metric. But essentially all of that promise lies in uh, being able to get to these very scaled quantum architectures. And I think networking has a, a major role to play there. So I see that in the next five to 10 years, that intersection really growing. But I also see simultaneously the networking and the sensing intersection growing a, a fair bit as well. So this whole field of quantum technologies with these three sensing, computing, networking components is uh, really, really uh, poised to deliver on, on some of the promises that have been made. We hear a lot about scalability as it relates to quantum. Where do you see the biggest challenges to achieving quantum at scale? When we are thinking about quantum computing at scale and really scale where you can run algorithms that are, you know, telling us something you couldn't do on a, a 
classical device and telling us something that is totally new, well, we're fighting thermodynamics, right? At that point, we're talking about a device where uh, you want to think about cooling. Well, that, that gets to be a, a hard problem. You start to think about how to connect devices. You get to a point where you're talking about the how to maintain the fidelity over such a large device becomes a challenge. I think there are many challenges that ultimately come down to, you know, two words, systems engineering, okay? And I think that that's something that the fields needs to really address in a, a concerted manner in order to, to get to a, a scaled uh, quantum computer or to scaled quantum architectures of whatever sort we're interested in. And I think that's where, you know, bringing in uh, folks from various parts of, of the engineering ecosystem, not just people who are trained in quantum engineering, not just quantum scientists, you know, people who come from a systems engineering background, an electrical engineering background, from, from the classical side, even folks on, on the software engineering who are from a classical software engineering or a classical uh, networking background is so important. Can you tell us a little bit about the specific areas of quantum that you're focused upon and the related technology development? Yes. Um, I'll, I'll give two, I guess I can't pick one, so I have to <laughs> give, give two examples. The, the first thing that we've been you know, working on in our group quite extensively is how do we think about open quantum systems and how do we think about algorithms for open quantum systems that run, ironically, not just on classical devices, but also on quantum devices, where you could perhaps take advantage of the, the you know, existing NISC noisy devices uh, to, to get some of these algorithms to go. So we started this in the context of uh, an NSF-funded uh, program where we said, okay, you know, how do we take some of the open systems algorithms that run um, you know, on your favorite large supercomputer and map those onto a small quantum device? And in, in some ways there were you know, challenges because you say, well, you're looking at uh, something that, that is for an open system, you're mapping it onto you know, a very, very small quantum device. You don't really have the ability to, to you know, pick uh, exactly what part of, of this full wave function you're, you're trying to, to put on the device. But we realized actually, this is work uh, together with uh, David Mattiotti at the University of Chicago, that there are classes of algorithms where you can map um, dynamics onto small quantum devices. And this could be, you know, when I say open systems dynamics, I mean, uh, systems where we're looking at uh, the behavior of our, our uh, physical system being beyond the Markovian limit. So there's some in interaction with the environment. There's some backflow of information from the environment back into the system. And when you're looking at such systems to be able to map it onto a quantum device while retaining uh, some of the mathematical properties that we spent a lot of time making sure exist on, on a, a you know classical uh, system actually uh, was, was quite exciting. So that was one example of something that you know we've been working on. Uh, we've been thinking about you know how open systems and NIST devices could could uh, intersect and uh, finally uh, hit a, a few successes on, on that front. Now what I like about this project and, and perhaps this is uh, of interest to uh, folks working on the quantum hardware side, you know when I start talking about algorithms, some of my, my hardware colleagues are like, oh, but how is this going to make hardware better? Well, here's the thing. When you think about open systems, right? Uh, a noisy system, a noisy hardware is also an open system. So you could do learning on such devices and actually use some of our ideas in open systems to 
to um, learn the, the noise uh, characteristics of uh, actual quantum device and, and use that again to find the right parameter space where perhaps you're slightly more robust to decoherence. So that was uh, example one. The second one, which I have been talking a, a lot about, and I think it's finally uh, made its way to, to the mainstream is how do we think about quantum repeaters, okay? And how do we think about solid state quantum repeaters that were first predicting? I like predicting, I'm a, a theorist and a, a computational scientist. How do we predict these and, and uh, guide some of the efforts in finding uh, quantum repeater architectures that are actually robust, that can go into networks in future that are, are scaled. Okay, so one, one step at a time. Well, when I'm talking about a quantum repeater, right, I'm not talking about uh, a repeater technology in the classical sense. We, we know from the no cloning theorem, that's not something that we can do, but it's something where you can perform uh, the, the swap operation. It's essentially allowing you to extend the range of uh, what a quantum network uh, can do. So in, in thinking about these repeater architectures, right, um, you'd say, well, what am I really looking for? Well, I'm essentially trying to make uh, a small quantum device where certain operations happen with very, very high fidelity and probably some way, at least when I think about matter-based quantum repeaters, going from a photon, something matter-based and, and uh, back out. So we've been thinking about how we can bring our experience, uh, my group's experience in, you know, very, interesting types of materials, various types of uh, new materials and bring that to bear on, on this problem of what would make the best quantum repeater architecture, so. So Professor Narang, you've talked about the importance of inclusivity as it relates to the quantum space. Can you expound upon that a bit? A very important question, very timely question you bring up on, you know, how can we make the fields uh, more inclusive and what advice would I have for particularly young women entering the fields of, of quantum science and engineering. So right off the bat, I wanna say this is a field that is making a concerted effort towards being inclusive, to, to bringing in people from all backgrounds. And that's one of the advantages of being a new field, right? We have the opportunity, well, we had the benefit of hindsight looking at uh, fields that, that you know, took a lot of time and, and uh, still are, are long ways from being as, as inclusive as we want to be. So taking um, some of that experience, learning some of that, I think the field of quantum science and engineering has tried from day zero to be as inclusive and um, as welcoming as possible. And anything specific to young female students or young professionals? Right, so for young women who are entering the fields, particularly at you know, the student or, or the postdoctoral level, my biggest piece of advice would be find, um, find a mentor. Doesn't have to be a faculty mentor, but somebody who is in the field, somebody who has some experience in this uh, field of quantum science and engineering, or maybe even a slightly adjacent field that would be able to, to you know, make some of the uh, introduction and, and lower the barrier to, to entering uh, the field. Now, I know finding a mentor is uh, advice that's out there. It's, it's easier said than done, so if you're thinking about entering the field and you're, you're at home today thinking, well, how do I get started? What's the first thing I can say that would make me a valuable contributor to the field? Well, I'd say get some, some hands-on experience. And the hands-on experience component here need not be, and probably 
for, for most people immediately cannot be in, in someone's lab, but you could go online. There are various companies that have made their um, you know, algorithms and, and their devices available. So you could you know, be on, on GitHub, contribute to those repositories. You could run your own experiments on some of these devices and get some of the initial experience, right? So these modules frequently go with uh, you know, some set of recorded uh, more formal talks on uh, the, the formalism behind them. And then you, you really get to you know, go in there, write some code, see what's doing, see how you could then take that code and build on it either for a new application, add some new functionality. And when you do that, and with that experience, you can go approach uh, either a, a startup that's in you know, quantum software, or uh, quantum hardware, doesn't, doesn't matter. You tell them, hey, here's a project I've already contributed to, here are skills I have, and here's something I'm interested in working on either as an intern or um, you know, just somebody who wants to uh, get, get a, a job there. So that's, that's you know, one of the pathways I see, and this is actually quite unique to the field of quantum science and engineering, just because so much of it is being made available online and, and open source that you really can do a lot just from uh, your, your own laptop. Beyond that, you know, my next um, piece of advice would be try and uh, reach out to folks in the field. There are a lot of people who are hiring big companies, startups, uh, academic groups, and see if you can get experience um, doing some, some technology development, some research in uh, the, the field. You know, one of the things I notice about applicants that I receive is um, you know, your, your record when you can point to projects you've completed matters a lot. It need not just be uh, a you know, paper or, or published work. You could point to uh, a body of code, something you've written, something you've contributed to the community and that can really make a big difference in, in uh, getting your, your uh, name to the top of, of someone's list in, in that hiring process. To more senior, but still, uh, young uh, researchers in the fields who are thinking, well, how do I, you know, uh, get noticed? I think one of the, the things you could do is attend the various quantum conferences that have been happening, some that are actually uh, put on by IEEE. You know, there are a lot of opportunities, giving talks there, getting your work presented in the form of uh, a poster. I think those would all uh, allow you to meet others in the fields and for them to know that you are working on this topic. How do you see the IEEE quantum initiative helping to advance quantum technology? So, you know, IEEE is a distinguished organization that's been around for, for a while. I think it has a key role in connecting folks who are coming from an engineering background, folks who certainly are, are trained and not just by trained, I mean, not just in the past five years, but, you know, folks who've been um, professional engineers, people who've contributed to large engineering organizations in um, various areas of electrical engineering, various areas of device engineering. You know, keep in mind, when we think about quantum devices, it's not just the quantum part of the quantum device that's important. All the controls, the various things associated with making quantum hardware go that require, you know, so the background people have from microwave engineering, some of the background people have from uh, large-scale device simulation, systems engineering, something we've already touched on. IEEE has a key role in connecting all of those engineering disciplines with people who are thinking about, you know, 
quantum science, quantum engineering from a, a physics or a chemistry or more of a, a fundamental science uh, perspective. I think that there's a real risk here. I'll, I'll say this to somebody who's been thinking about quantum networking uh, a fair bit recently, that there's a real risk here of reinventing certain things, right? So when we, as quantum network folks, start to connect with classical networking uh, engineers, people who've really you know, been around in, in the field for some time, uh, it became apparent that you know, rediscovering quantum SDNs offered by networks would not be the best way to go. Thinking about you know, the various levels of this network, it's something that we could really uh, interact with, with um, classical network engineers, learn from their experience as well as uh, positive and, and negative and, and mistakes in uh, SDN, think about the, the control plane architectures and apply that. Of course, it's not gonna apply one-to-one, find ways of applying that knowledge to uh, quantum networks. And I think that as an organization, IEEE is really you know, instrumental in, in connecting people across those disciplines that may not typically talk with each other. Professor Morang, thank you again for contributing to the IEEE Quantum Podcast Series. In closing, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with our listening audience? Yes, there, there is one uh, aspect of this that I, I want to talk about which we've you know, talked about how people can enter the fields and feel supported. Uh, something I wanna talk about is from a curriculum standpoint and also you know, for uh, academics who are in the field thinking about how do I incorporate some of this into the, the classroom? How do I think about um, you know, making quantum science and engineering uh, available to, to students? So um, actually, sponsored by, again, uh, NSF and, and OSCP, we, we wrote um, a, a paper was published in, in IEEE um, last year where we talked about how to build, uh, and this was a community consensus, hence I used the word we, um, you know, how to build an undergraduate curriculum that incorporates quantum science and engineering. And I think this is incredibly important because something we put forward there is that, you know, you don't need a full uh, four-year program that is entirely focused on it. But, you know, if you're thinking about how do I pick up a couple of courses, fit that into um, the larger ABET framework, or how do I think about, you know, maybe even a concentration. And, and in some cases, if you're super committed, think about a, a master's. I think there are opportunities to make that happen. And uh, there is a need for that. There are almost every person I talk to in, in the quantum ecosystem that I see at, at conferences says, hey, by the way, we're hiring, do you know anyone? So this is uh, definitely an area where being trained in, in the fields, very broadly speaking, is, is gonna be important. And it's uh, something that you know, I, I hope to, uh, I hope you will A, read the, the paper that I, I just mentioned, and um, also you know, something that I'm particularly passionate about pursuing here now at, uh, at UCLA, we have uh, a master's program that, that we've launched that is focused on quantum science and engineering. And it's uh, really to, to fill that, that gap, especially if there hasn't been as much exposure to the engineering aspect, the hands-on engineering in um, the undergraduate uh, four-year degree that, that people have done. So for example, when people think about quantum hardware and they say, well, I wanna be a trained quantum engineer, uh, you know, there's uh, a lot of electronics, some electronics that is, is 
very classical. Uh, the controls that are very, very classical, and you want to have hands-on experience with uh, some of that. So again, to students and, and also to uh, academics who are listening, watching, I uh, encourage you to, to take a look at uh, our and, and various other efforts out there to bring quantum science and engineering into the classroom uh, as early as possible and as meaningfully as possible. The, the paper I mentioned is uh, available on the IEEE Quantum Initiative website. And I, I encourage you to take a look at it. Thank you for listening to our interview with Professor Prinaha Narang. To learn more about the IEEE Quantum Initiative, please visit our web portal at quantum.ieee.org.